What's up? I'm Kyle Pagan. I'm I'm the host today, the only host today of Crossing Broadcast until 1230 when we have Bob Wangle come on. Please hit that thumbs up. Please hit subscribe, whether you're on YouTube or whether you're on the podcast. Let me be the first to wish you a happy December. Uh, like I said, I'm running solo until 1230. A lot of corporate shit that Kev had to do. A lot of corporate shit that Bob had to do. Russ had to do. Don't don't think that I didn't try to bring in the relievers to help me out. Uh, but when Bob does come on around 1230, we're talking about Trey Turner, Eagles, Titans, Cocaine Bear, and more. But since I'm solo, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do something a little bit newer. We're going to do a little segment called A Tour Around the Timeline where I pick out different things from my Twitter timeline and react to them. But um, I don't want it to be just me. So feel free to drop suggestions in the comments, the links. The, uh, you know, what is what is Santa bringing you for Christmas? If you're Jewish out there, what is Jewish Santa bringing you for the Festival of Lights? I'm pretty sure I'm getting slippers, which I'm pretty jazzed up about. Uh, are you a white lights guy? Are you a color lights person? Preferably, I'm a white lights guy. I think it's the personification of class. I don't think it, it screams if you're rich or if you're poor, but I just think it's a very classy light. I think it looks good in the snow. I also think I've seen a lot of shitty colored lights kind of, you know, things on houses and stuff. You know, usually I feel like the people who do the color lights also have all the snowmen and the Santa and the and the Grinches and the blow up shit all over their all over their yard. And I think it's just, you know, a little bit tacky. But you know, I don't think you're white trash if you do color lights, if you do them well. If you put them on the tree, I'm all team color lights. But I think I've just grown to hate them because I've seen such shitty bang up jobs. But like I said, let's get the comment section rolling today. This is supposed to be interactive for you guys. You know, this isn't my show. This isn't Kevin's show. This is the people's show. And I'm also going to need all of you because I've never killed 30 minutes in my life. See, here we go right now. Philly fan checking in. Shout out Christine McVee. Well, R.I.P. Christine McVie. She died yesterday, if anyone didn't see. Can we get a top three Fleetwood Mac songs? Uh, number one, Dreams. Uh, number two, Break the Chain. Break the Chain when Stevie Nicks looks at um, Lindsey Buckingham, the live shot on the YouTube. Go back and look that up. That is an all-time, I want to murder you, but I'm not going to murder you because I'm a millionaire and I'm off coke um, scene. So if you go there, look at the live one. I forget what that was. I think it was like in like the 80s or 90s, but it was awesome. Stevie Nicks just shooting daggers through Lindsey Buckingham's skull for uh, for two minutes because he broke her heart. Um, third one, Landslide. Landslide is an ultimate karaoke song. So I think I have Dreams. Um, I think I have Break the Chain and then um, Landslide. Yeah. I mean, naming your top three favorite Fleetwood Mac songs is like naming your like like the Brady Bunch naming their like six children, you know, which one was the favorite because there are so many classic hits. So shout out to you, Philly fan. Um, let's get it started right now. I want to pull up one. Calum Scott had his Spotify numbers doubled thanks to Phillies fans. Caleb Scott, obviously the guy who sang Dancing With My Own for the whole Sixers or so whole Phillies uh, playoff run. It went from 520 million streams last year to 60 million listeners last year to 27 million hours in 178 countries. This year, he did a billion streams, almost 100 million listens, 50 million hours, 
183 countries. So I guess no one really tuned in from uh, internationally outside of, uh, well, maybe, I don't know. I guess you'd call Jersey a different country. Um, that's insane. Almost doubled it just from a, a World Series playoff run of Callum Scott. Dancing on my own. Now, I, I've I've been on record saying Dancing on my own, the Tiesto version. I was a Robin guy to start, but it was too long. I looked it up. It wasn't like seven minutes, like I said, when I had the bro on and with Kevin on Tuesday. It's more like a 430, and the Tiesto remix with Callum Scott is a is 340-ish, so they're actually not that different. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 I'm a Tiesto, Caleb Scott guy, not a Robin one anymore. I'm sorry. Um, but I did spread misinformation, and I apologize for that. Um, Craig, you got this one? The Big Five. Everyone wants to talk about the Big Five yesterday. If anyone didn't miss it, I'm sure – if anyone didn't see it, I'm sure you didn't because no one was there. I don't know how the TV ratings were. But – uh the big five doubleheader last night was absolutely abysmal. Um, people are already calling for like the death of the big five. And I don't think that's true. Um, Craig, scroll down a little bit to, to Dan Gelston's video. It's bad. Here's. So, yeah, so they had. I want to say if you saw. So the Barstool Invitational had. 5,213 people, and that was featuring Toledo, UAB, Mississippi State, and Akron. Obviously, this is the Big Five, so it had Temple LaSalle, and then a doubleheader with St. Joe's and Penn, which went into OT. Temple won by 16. St. Joe's won by 5. 3,246 people in that doubleheader, and obviously, it doesn't even look like that much in uh, in that game. People want to call for the death of the Big Five. Um, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, supposedly tickets were shit. Um, getting tickets to students was shit. Getting buses out to the Plester was shit. Like, supposedly Temple and LaSalle did not prepare well for for this game. Um, Craig, if you go down a little bit a little bit further, there's a picture of the game from 2014. I was actually at this game and it was an it was an awesome environment. Um pretty sure Cleef Wyatt was still on this team. Uh, but this was a good Temple team. 2014 was a good Temple team. Um, and this was on a Saturday eight years ago. There's a big difference from putting a game on a Saturday at 1 o'clock and a Wednesday at 6 p.m. Um, I obviously don't know what schedules and everything. I, I obviously don't know with, you know, tournaments and, and everything. But, I mean, I'm not. I'm really not ready to call like a, a death to the big five because you know a bunch of students and, and people didn't show up for a six o'clock game on a on a random Wednesday in 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 December during the holidays. Um you know put this shit put this shit on a on a on a weekend. On a Saturday at one, you know, you have Temple LaSalle at three thirty, four you got St. Joe's, you got Penn. I mean, obviously the team's got to be better and whatnot. Villanova's got to buy in more, but would you really blame Villanova for not buying in more? Would you rather go to Atlantis or would you rather go play at the Big Five? You know, would you rather go to the Bahamas? Would you rather go out to Cancun? Would you rather do all this stuff and travel? And, you know, it's a big recruiting trip trip for your uh, for the people that you recruit, even though Kyle Neptune stinks and Temple's going to win the Big Five and they have a stranglehold on it right now. Or would you rather be at the Pleasure in Philadelphia? Like, at some point, it's just got to... The team's got to get better. The program's got to get better. 
Philly basketball has got to get better. Guys got to stay home more. Um, it's not a, it's, and it's, it's not a, it's not a knack on the recruits that are leaving, you know, for programs, you know, that we got that one kid from Monsignor Bonner, who's down in, uh, who's down in Miami killing it. Uh, we had Quade Green who went out to Kentucky. He later transferred, uh, Tony Chenault was a guy that he went out to Wake Forest, came back to Villanova, but like these guys, they, they always leave and they transfer and then they, and then they come back or sorry, they leave and get recruited out and then they come back and they transfer and stuff. And it's just like, we just got to get better programs, better stuff in the city, um, and I think it starts kind of with like, you know, Temple leading the torch. Um, Philly fan has a good point. Did all the schools change coaches the last five years? Besides Fran, most coaches are unrecognizable. You're exactly right. I mean, McKee's new. Uh, Fran's been at three different programs um, in his tenure. The guy at LaSalle, I couldn't even tell you. I mean, if, if you told me it was Dr. John Giannini and I know it's not, I would still say, yeah, it is. But yeah, I just think... Um, I think it's just important to to get the big five back to where it was. And the St. Joe's guy is like a former Sixers assistant, I think. Um, you know, I really care about the big five. I know a lot of people don't my age. I know a lot of people, you know, my, our, our father's age, our grandfather's age, the big five was a big deal. I think there's a lot of things you can do. I think I love the whole relegation system. Um, I know people are, 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 are anti-rel. I know people are pro-rel. Um, I think it would be awesome if you included Penn State. I also, or not Penn State, uh, Del Drexel. I did see some people say include Penn State as well. I don't understand that. I know they've been a better program in the last couple of years, and they do get some, and they do actually do a lot better recruiting in Philadelphia than even Aaron McKee does. Um, but that being said, I think they should they should kind of include Drexel into it. Whoever comes in last uh, gets, you know quote unquote relegated to the to the city six. And it's 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 nothing, you know, big. It's it's not like a, oh my God, you know, take a hit in your endowment, take a hit in your recruiting. It's the big five's never been anything about championships. It's never been anything about banners. It's never been anything about anything other than bragging rights and being able to tell this Villanova guy, yeah, you guys suck. We beat you. Like I have 365 days to tell Villanova fans that we beat them, to tell Kyle Scott, to tell tell other buddies of mine and stuff. Just like you know, Michigan has 365 days to tell Ohio State they suck. You know, it's just, it's just stuff like that. It's it's a whole rivalry thing. And I think it's really something you can build up with a rivalry. And then have a tournament. You know, spend a weekend. Have a tournament. A Friday to Sunday, a Thursday to Sunday, however you want to do it, however the organizers want to do it. Just do a tournament with the big fives. And then at the end, you crown a champion. I mean, people love tournaments. You know, they go back to the Middle Ages. People love tournaments. Like, you got to build some kind of some punch, some pizzazz, some other P words to, to the big five. If you want to really do it. I mean, now with social media and everything, you, you can do that and, you know, get, you know, you just got to be creative. And I feel like the big five has just kind of gone the way of, you know, the Dodo bird and stuff, you know, it's a little bit because of Raleigh Massimino and, uh, and, and, and Jay Wright, cause they didn't want to be in it, but those dudes also won national championships. So it's kind of like, I don't really blame them. Do you want to, do you want to play? you know, Temple and LaSalle and go with the gauntlet of St. Joe's and, and, and Penn, or do you want to play, you know, Wright State or, or, or some, some sisters of the poor program that they'd probably lose to this year um, to, you know, kind of get, to get the guys ready. You know, that's, that's also a thing. Like you don't want to take a, a loss or two losses in, in November and then your, your, your RPI or your, your chem pumps fucked for the tournament, you know, sucks that the first time Temple's beat Villanova, that they're doing everything in their power to, you know, ruin their resume win. Um, 
there's a lot of things you can do. I think there's a lot of things you can do about the big five to kind of make it, bring it back. And like I said, it's, it's all about bragging rights. It's all about, you know, your team sucks. My team beat yours and stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting pretty right now. I'm two and now in the big five, got a stranglehold over it. Um, but there are definitely ways to, to get some excitement around the big five. What else we got, Craig? Uh, oh, I like this one. Can you pull up Tom Rinaldi's travel schedule? This is absolutely wild. If you didn't see Tom Rinaldi's travel schedule, and I like Tom Rinaldi before about what I'm what I'm about to say, but uh, zoom in there a little bit if you can there, Craig, or click on the picture. I don't know what you got there. Um, Tom Rinaldi's schedule. So he's doing, he's doing, obviously he's the cry guy. He's the cry guy at Fox. He does all the pieces that make you cry at 9 a.m. on a, uh, on a on a college football Saturday, but here was his schedule for the last eight days: feature reporter and essayist for uh, coverage of the World Cup in Doha. Flew back on Tuesday to New Jersey. He spent, I guess, he probably did. He probably did Thanksgiving with the family. He was there for eighteen hours. Wednesday, he flies out to Dallas. Thursday, he f- he does the the, the Cowboys Giants game. Friday, he flies to Columbus, Ohio for the Michigan game. Saturday, he does the Michigan-Ohio State game. After the game, he flies to Kansas City through Detroit. Sunday, he's the sideline reporter for Chiefs versus the Rams. Monday, November 28th, he's flying to Dallas, back to Cutter on a 14-hour journey um, to put the finishing touches on a feature on U.S. Captain Tyler Adams. Tuesday, he's doing wraparound coverage for that piece and for the U.S.-Iran World Cup game. Once again, I like Tom Rinaldi. Cried a couple times at nine in the morning, you know, when he would have his puff pieces and everything. Is Tom Rinaldi really the guy to spend a hundred grand on travel to fly all around the world? Like if Tom Rinaldi, who they already have Jenny Taft doing sideline reporting down there or over there in, in Qatar, is Tom Rinaldi really, you know, are you, are you, are you getting up in the morning and being like, fuck, I got to see what what Tom Rinaldi's piece on Tyler Adams is like. And I and I understand some people might be some people, some big U.S. fans might and everything. And it gets passed around on Twitter if it's really good and stuff. And, you know, that's why that's how Tom Rinaldi made his bones and stuff. But there's there's some dude there's there's Craig in HR at, at Fox Sports and he just got fired in October right before the holidays. And he's wondering why. And it's because they probably had a budget meeting. They're like, all right, we're flying Tom. We're flying him to the World Cup. We're flying him to Thanksgiving. We're flying him to the Kansas City Chiefs game. Then we're flying him back out to Cutter all in eight days. It's going to cost around sixty to 70000 to fly. I don't know if we have it in our budget. Well, it's like, okay, one of those zero-sum businesses like marketing, like HR, uh, guys that don't make the don't make the company money. There's this HR generalist who's just sitting there wondering why he got fired in October sitting on his hands right before the holidays. It's right here. It's because of Tom Rinaldi's schedule. Tom, you got fired so that they could put money in the budget for Tom Rinaldi to fly all around the world. I just, I just don't know if this is the this is the greatest use of funds when we're when we're coming up on a recession when you know a lot of advertising are are, are pulling their pulling their money back and stuff. People are kind of looking at you know looking at the uh, the financial economic landscape with like uh, how do we cut money here? How do we cut money there? And we're flying Tom fucking Rinaldi all around the world. He's jet setting all around the world to do. You know, do I really need to cry uh, at five in the morning when Saudi Arabia and Argentina are playing? I, I don't think so. I really don't. It's a, it's a wild schedule for Tom Rinaldi to have. Nobody's getting up in the morning to watch Tom Rinaldi. He were getting up in the morning to watch Landon Donovan, Clint Dempsey, sometimes Lawless, uh, and they're getting up just to uh, just to watch. You know, but they're not getting up to fucking watch Tom Rinaldi. I'll tell you that. Um, I think that's all I got really for today. 
Bob did just check in. It is twelve twenty-eight. I appreciate Bob coming in. Um, so let's bring him on. What's up? Wow, look at you, color lights. I was doing a whole bit on color lights that I think that's they're trashy, but I'm okay with them being on a garland and I'm okay with them being wow. on a tree. Well, how about you know, over my left shoulder here uh, to your right on YouTube, folks? You see the white mini Christmas tree. We're trying to keep it festive down here in the office these days. Are you a white lights on the exterior or are you a color? I'm a white lights guy on the exterior all the way, actually. Personification of class there, Bob. Oh, yeah. What's going on, man? How are we doing on this lovely Thursday? I just crushed 30 minutes by myself. I don't know if I uh, I don't know if the people on YouTube or the people who listen to the podcast are going to like it, but I sure had fun. What did we talk about? What, what did I miss? We talked about the big five people trying to cancel the big five because there wasn't a good turnout on a, on a random Wednesday in fucking uh, December. When eight years ago, you see the picture and it was a Saturday game and it was one o'clock and both teams were actually good at that point. I lost money on Penn last night. I had Penn money line in a four team money line parlay and they, the they busted they busted like, it for me. Did you even watch the game? Uh, I watched it with five minutes left as I saw Penn choking away the lead. Dude, did did you see the camera work? I did. Uh, it looked like it was something straight out of like 1988. It was... Uh, I, I don't know if it was just my TV, but there was like a thing going across the screen at different points. Like it was, yeah, there were, no, no, it, it wasn't your TV. It was not your TV. It's really bad. If anyone saw this, this was a hatchet job by NBC Sports Plus. Craig, I'm about to drop the link in the uh, in the chat for you. This was an absolute hatchet job by the AV team of either Temple. I think LaSalle was home, so I think it was the LaSalle people, and then I, I, I'm sure Penn was home, so I guess it's Penn. But holy shit, if you can, if you can uh, bring this up. Craig, at one point, the cameraman got caught sleeping or he got caught watching the game because we missed an entire possession. Now, Temple was up 16 at, at this point. Back it up, Craig. Or they were up 10 at this point. But, so LaSalle goes over half. We don't see LaSalle for five more seconds. And then he doesn't even go the whole way. We, we, we can't even see the basket right now. They're throwing the ball around. I think someone gets up a shot here. Who gets the rebound? I don't know. I mean, this is what we like. I yeah, thought I mean, honestly, was, by the by the end of the the Penn St. Joe's game, I was actually just kind of like ready to take my loss. I didn't need overtime. Like I was just, I was good. <laughs> I, I I just I, I thought NBC was supposed to nuke the NBC Sports Plus channel, but I I guess not. Um, I guess they're going to keep that around for more uh, illustrious Big Five matchups. And then we also talked about Pat Burrell's Cribs episode, which was probably the best thing that uh, NBC Sports has done in the last 20, 30 years, because we definitely know it's not a baseball game. Right, Bob? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to talk to you about Trey Turner. Okay. Um, am I wrong for being a little hesitant about it? Well, what is the premise of you being hesitant about it? What what scares you about Trey I, Turner? I, I think it's I, nothing scares me about Trey Turner. The guy is slump proof. I mean, I, I listened to his whole highlight film narrated by uh, John Hamm. It was awesome. Um, shout out to that agent. Um, what worries me is like how much is is Middleton willing to spend? You know, is he is he is it three is it thirty M's for Trey Turner and then hey you know we're gonna plug and play with uh, with a third reliever or is it hey Trey Turner and Carlos Rodon is on the table or Trey Turner and Justin Verlander is on the on the table because um, you could sell me on Bogarts you could sell me on uh, Swanson if if you can also sell me on like a, a a number one number two pitcher 
Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, I have to kind of dust off my Phillies cap here. I, I haven't really been been in this uh, lately, but I will say this. You know, anytime you can go out and add a player like that, it's going to excite the fan base. It's going to create a lot of juice, a lot of energy. But that's not necessarily what this fan base needs right now. I mean, they just they got a World Series appearance, right? So I don't think that you need to give this fan base a jolt with this with this type of signing. That being said, he just does so many things well. And when you stack up all of these different shortstop possibilities, and, and though it is a very strong market, he's got to be at the top of it. I mean, he is the best all-around player. But there are a few different concerns when you look at it. Number one, he probably is going to cost top dollar. And what is that going to do? Is it going to deplete your, your financial allocation to other holes that you have on this team? So I think that that's a valid concern. And then when you just look at the player himself, I mean – he has had a history of injuries and you know, you start to look at that and you go, can I count on this guy for 140 games plus per year? Or am I going to be, and if you look at his year by year, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of seasons where he played less than a hundred games. And I think that you do have to take that into consideration. So, I I want the Phillies to go out and do Trey Turner. I think that the leadoff spot in this lineup continues to really, really hamper this offense. When you talk about the inconsistencies of what the Phillies offense was in 2022, I think a lot of it starts with the fact that they still don't have a clearly defined leadoff hitter. And I think he can be that for this team. Um, so, I mean, that's the guy that I circle and say, if you can go get him, go get him. Okay. Um, I think from a, a you know, clubhouse standpoint, the fit, the relationship with Bryce Harper. I think all that stuff's real. Um, I think that that matters. So I, I would do that deal. That is the guy that I would pay. I would pay him more, not, uh, you know, absurd amount more, but that's the guy I would probably go target. Um, but this team does with? have holes. Say that again. Sorry. It does have multiple holes. And, yeah. you know, I look at the way that the World Series played out and the way this postseason played out. And it's very hard to be critical of the Phillies right now. But, I mean, you look at what they trotted out in the World Series in terms of starting pitching, and it's really hard to replicate that that recipe, that formula. You talk about Rob Thompson pushing all the right buttons. Mm -hmm. What I'd rather see the Phillies do is not require the manager to mix and match and have to have every correct button pressed in order for things to work out. There is something to be said for, hey, let's trot out a guy that's just going to blow your fucking doors off. And, you know, the Phillies didn't really have that luxury beyond Zach Wheeler this postseason. I mean, the NL East is going to be an absolute bloodbath next year. Yeah. Um, and then you see the Houston Astros, who are probably going to be the ones you're going to compete against with, saw it go out and, and, and really fill the only hole they had at first base and sign Jose Abreu. Um, Go ahead. Well, it's, it's what is what is the 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 goal of the 2022 Phillies, right? Like you have this, or I'm sorry, the 23 Phillies. You have young talent coming in in Andy Painter, and you know you look at these guys and you say, all right, there's finally some real legitimate like blue chip talent that could maybe be knocking on the door this season. Um, and and we, you hear about Abel and McGarrett, you know, we, we know the names, but we don't know what it is going to look like. In and they're probably going to be on a, a pitch limit when they do get Likely. up here. Yeah, for sure. So you, you know that you're going to get some in-house reinforcements and that's great, but this is still a core that I would say doesn't have to win in 23. Like the window doesn't slam shut after 23. But when you look at these guys coming off the season, they just had, I do think it's, it's legitimate to, to kind of think 
they got to do it in 23 or 24. So like, that's where I look at it and say like, well, if you're just trying to compete and win a wild card and, and give the fans something to talk about until, you know, the Eagles get going in, in early October next year, then fine. Like you do one of these free agent signings and just hope it pans out. But if it's, if it's championship aspirations, if that is now the standard, the Phillies have to be better next year than they were this year. You, mm-hmm. you cannot bank on a team, you know, being a, a wild card and then and busting through that way. Like it just yeah. that is not a sustained recipe for success. The Phillies have to be better next year. I, and I think John Middleton, and I've said this before, I think he got a taste of what it was like to own this city. And I think he wants that. I think he's an egomaniac, and, and a lot of the owners are. They, they want to own these, the city that they're in. Yeah, I, I fully believe that John Middleton wants wants to win. Um, and, and I think I, we may have talked about it on this show before. I mean, there's no doubt that you can be critical of the Phillies organization for you know some of the minor league uh, issues that they've had, not just in terms of development and, and, and in terms of, of – finding talent, but I mean, just treatment of minor, I mean, it's well documented that there's been some, some issues with how their minor leaguers have been treated over the years, but I, I look at it and I, I really do believe the guy wants to win. And if he's presented by Dave Dombrowski, who you, you know, he trusts uh, to, to the, to the highest degree, Hey, here's a plan that can win you a championship in 23. This is what I need from you. I, I think the owner is going to say, all right, let's go. I mean, I, I think you can, be, you can believe that as a fan. What's Bob's hope? You know, what's your hope? Well, I, I think that the Bryce Harper injury really kind of it kind of complicates everything, right? Like because if Bryce Harper comes back and is is playing right field in April next year, you'd say, all right, you can slot back Castellanos to DH and it all looks good. And then you just you add Trey Turner to shortstop, you move Bryson Stott to second base, you know, and you feel really good about what you have there. I still think they need another starting pitcher. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know who that is. Like, maybe it's 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 probably not going to be any of these frontline guys that are going to command $20 million plus per year. But I really do think that they need somebody else in that starting rotation that they can rely upon. And so if it's Turner, uh, you know, a, a mid-rotation starter, a guy that you could say, like, this is a, this is a guy that profiles as a 3-4 type guy – and then you bring in a painter and and hope for the best, but not depend on him to be an absolute stud. I think that's the ideal situation from a starting rotation standpoint. And then you have to, I think you need another gun in the back of that bullpen. The guy, mm-hmm. I, I thought Jose Alvarado had a, a, an incredible season. His, his in-season turnaround is, was an all-timer, World Series aside. I mean, I know things fell apart at the end for him. Um, Sir Anthony Dominguez, you, like you love the guy. I, I just think they need another another bullet in the back of that bullpen that they can feel about, good about late in games getting important outs. You think like a middle guy or you think like a more of a setup man for, for Dominguez? Yeah, more of like a setup man. I think that you go into next season and say Sir Anthony Dominguez is our closer. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how – I don't think that there's anything other than just being a little bit worried about the usage in the postseason, you know, the coming off of an injury that was significant and multiple seasons missed. But if you can kind of look at him and, and evaluate him this winter and say, like, there's really structurally nothing wrong here. There's no reason not to think that Sir Anthony Dominguez can't be an above average closer next season. It is kind of worrisome, though, if you like really like step back and you look at it, and you're like everything went as perfect as it could have went in this postseason. And it went and it didn't go as perfect as it could have in, in the uh, in this regular season. They did sneak in and everything. But 
to replicate what they need to replicate to get back to the World Series would be insane. And I and, and Trey Turner would do a lot to to help that. I, but also, I think you know if they do whiff, you know, I would be okay with like Danzy Sponson and and um, not Correa, but the other guy, uh, uh, Bogarts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go out and get one of those guys, and then there's a, a supplemental signing of significance, and you mm-hmm. say, "Hey, listen, we brought you two very good players here," instead of maybe the guy that that probably brings the most juice, uh, I think that that's that's totally fine. But you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we can talk about Aaron Nola and Wheeler in the beginning of the postseason, and what Alvarado and Dominguez did late in games, and Ranger Suarez being so so important to what this team was doing. And Kyle Schwarber had his moments and like every guy sort of contributed, like you could go down the list, but there was some undefined intangible magic that this team captured. Right. And I don't think that you can rely on that intangible, like the good vibes of the city and Mm -hmm. team just coming together at the right time. I don't think that you can rely on that as part of the recipe next season. I think you have to come into next season and say the, the Braves are pissed. The Mets are pissed. You know, the Dodgers are pissed. Those are three huge obstacles in the National League right there. And Padres, oh, Cardinals. Yeah, and I mean, listen, it's going to be ultra competitive again. The Phillies, I don't want to say the Phillies had no business being in the World Series. Like, they very, very much earned their way to that spot. And they were as impressive as they can be. But what is the if, – if they just ran things back again – and just said, all right, let's get the band back together and do everything the exact same way without that marquee addition, which, by the way, they're going to make. They're going to do this. But if they didn't, what can they hang their hats on and say, like, all right, well, next season we're going to be in better shape because of this? Is it Nick Castellanos bounces back from just a, a completely dreadful a year offensively, you know, past the month of April anyway? Is it that – as much as we all like Bryson Stott and, and a lot of the encouraging things that he did, he did not have a very good World Series. Statistically, his postseason was not very strong. Does he take another step forward? Um, yeah, maybe. Maybe those are the two things that you look at and say they could be better. Maybe defense at first base could could not be an absolute killer for you in next postseason. True. But, but other than that, there's really not a lot you can bank on and say like, oh, okay, this is going to be better next season with this current group. And I think that when you consider the competition, that's why that organization knows we, we've got to continue to go. We've got to continue to spend. Um, where, what's your lineup looking like? I, I have a, I have a premeditated lineup right here that you can just tell me yes or no. I have Turner Schwarbs. If this Turner shining, obviously happens real Muto, Bryce, boom, Castellanos, Hoskins, Stott, Marsh. Yeah, I, I think that, that that makes some sense. They talk about, you know, Reese Hoskins and, and wanting to hit him too. I mean, I think <laughs> you look I, at you look at the Houston Astros number two hitter was the was the World Series MVP. And then you look at Reese Hoskins was the number two hitter, had one of the worst World Series in, in World Series history. Yeah, once upon a time with Reese Hoskins, you would talk about when when he wasn't swinging the bat well, the, the on-base tool, you know, not to go all like baseball douche on you here, but like that tool never really evaporated even when he didn't hit because he worked counts and he drew walks. And I just think that you need more consistency at the top of your lineup. And easy to say now coming off of the postseason that we just we just went through, but – yeah, I, I really – and I know Kyle Schwarber isn't a model of consistency. I mean, like, yeah. neither of these guys really profile as a as like a, a, a true number two type hitter, but 
baseball has shifted in a way where you, you, you can skew more power. You can skew a little bit more inconsistent um, in that spot than you used to. I mean, back in the day, it was about like, you know, Placido Polanco or like even a guy like Gene Segura at his peak, you know, all right, I got a runner on first base. There's two strikes. I'm going to hit behind the runner and slap a base hit to right. We're going to go first to third. It's going to be great. That two hitter is going to have a little bit of speed, but the two hitter in baseball just profiles differently. Now I've never really been a huge lineup guy. Like I'm always, I know that you can maximize what you have by piecing a lineup together properly. But I think especially when you're talking in the beginning of December about what a team might look like, I'm always more of the thought, like, just get the right players in place, and then you have five months to kind of fuck around and tinker with it and, and get it right for the postseason. Okay. All right. You, I mean, we're talking about 30, 30 million going to Trey Turner. Did you hear about the the one Saudi team that's offering Ronaldo $225 million a year? Not yeah, I, a contract, a year. So it's it's hard for me to take my brain away from like the NFL and the and Major League Baseball and the way that contracts work and like what the worth of those contracts really truly kind of equates to. So I don't really know even what that means. I don't know where that money comes from. The oil. I don't, <laughs> I don't know where that money like does that is it worth it? Is that like the is that a, a valuable spend for them? Like I It's it's the most popular player in the world in the most popular sport in the world in you know, I, uh, an area of the Middle East that's like amazing. So, but like, listen, if John Middleton wants to sell the fills for like five billion, maybe even ten billion to the Saudis, <laughs> the articles will be pretty funny from Bob when he has to criticize ownership about <laughs> uh, paying for Jacob Degrom and and he's uh, overpaying for Jacob Degrom and he had arm issues the whole time. And then Bob's wondering if he makes it out of the press box or not at a one hundred five matinee. You know, on the same time, I don't know that you're going to be writing any Dollar Dog Night uh, articles no. at that point. Like, I would, whatever you guys want. <laughs> I would not be criticizing the Phillies no. in their handling of the Dollar Dog Night, and uh, but it would be really cool. We'd probably have we probably had uh, the opportunity to buy Falcons in Section 302. We'd probably have Tigers lining the 400 level just in cages and stuff. It would be pretty cool. Daddy Chic. I mean, Man City turned around. Yeah, that's that's, that's a good point. <laughs> um. We, I got a little bit more before we get into cocaine bear. Um, <laughs> Eagles Titans this weekend, minus five for the birds. Uh, the total is 44 and a half. AJ Brown plays his old team. Will Derrick Henry run for 200 yards? Is anyone scared of this seven and four Titans team who are in the worst division in, well, I guess not the worst division in the NFL. That goes to the NFC South, um, but one of the worst ones. Um, how do you feel about this game? There's so many like different levels to unpack with this game. And I think that the the feeling that I get watching the Titans is that I am never surprised when they win a game and I'm never surprised when they lose a game. But I really do think that Mike Vrabel is a is a top seven to eight coach in the NFL. Like those guys Daly or Mike Vrabel. Oh my God, Mike Vrabel all day. Oh my God. It's not even close. I bring this guy is the biggest fraud. Oh, <laughs> Just oh god. Oh. But Vrabel, I mean, the team always plays tough. They are a miserable, miserable team to play for three hours, you know, week in, week out. Like they are physical, they're tough. 
they do make some very untimely mistakes on occasion. A lot of that kind of nets back to the quarterback, but I, I really do. Uh, I have a lot of respect for that Titans team. I don't think it's the most talented team in the world. I'm aware of what you just said. The division is, is not particularly strong top to bottom. I think that they certainly take advantage of that. Um, but it's going to be a tough game on Sunday. You talk about, and I know everyone's like, Hey, you know, Derrick Henry's going to run for 285 yards. I don't know that Derrick Henry running for 285 yards is going to be the determining factor of whether yeah. or not the Eagles can win the game. I do think, however, that this is going to come down to what we have not seen for about a month now, since really going back to that Steelers game. And I think that this game comes down to can Jalen hurts, consistently make plays through the air and not just like the one or two plays when you need it most, but like really dominate a game through the air. And we haven't seen that consistently. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong. This is not a criticism of him whatsoever. I couldn't be more impressed with Jalen Hurts as a leader, as a, as a, as a runner and as a passer. I mean, when they had to make big time throws last week against Green Bay, he delivered. That I mean, back he, shoulder to Quez, unbelievable throw. I mean, it, so I'm not suggesting that so, he. Hold on a second. Him scrambling around at the end of the game, this one kind of went under the radar. That hit Quez Watkins in the hands, and I think Quez Watkins maybe should have came out with that. And I think that's his MVP throw. And DraftKings has a little different of a uh, of, of odds for the MVP race going on. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I just think that he has checked every single box you could ask him to check. And the Eagles have done a great job of saying, okay, how how do we win this game? Is it going to be by running for 300 yards? Like, we don't need Jalen Hurts to go out and throw for 330. Like, we don't need that. I think that this Sunday is going to be a game where they do. I, I really do think that this game is going to be about Jalen Hurts consistently making the throws to, to put the points on the board this time. I think that the Titans – you look at that run defense, you look at what they do up front, very physical team. I think that they will try to limit what the Eagles do on the ground. And, and I think Jalen Hurts will be able to do it. Now, would I play with the five points? I probably I, I probably wouldn't. Um I feel like it's gonna be a weird, it's gonna be a weird, weird uh like a scoregami game. I think we're gonna get a scoregami game. Like there might be a safety. There might be like some weird shit just going on, I feel like. Yeah, I, I feel like that there's this sense that the Eagles aren't going to win this. Like it's almost gone. You know how this works when you're betting on a game or you, you hear talk, talk about a game going in and like the Eagles are 10 and one. They're only favored by five points. Like veteran betters look at this line and go like, Ooh, this is suspect. And you have the Titans coming off of this tough loss at home last week to Cincinnati. And it feels like a little bit of a bounce back spot for them. How much do the Eagles really need this game is, is I think what people are going to say from a national perspective, I, I would just counter with this. You're at home. It's going to be one o'clock. You haven't had a lot of these games this year. Yeah. You have no margin for error considering where the Vikings are at right now, mm -hmm. considering that the, the Cowboys are, you know, I don't want to say the Cowboys are hot, but they're still within striking distance of the Eagles. I just don't think that, that, that this is the quintessential 10 and one team that doesn't have a lot to play for. I think that this is a team that if they're really this good, they take care of business. Like they find a way to win the game. And maybe Monday morning, we're all bitching again about, uh, it wasn't pretty or Henry went for a buck 70 or, you know, whatever. I just think that you win the game and you find a way. And I think they will. I a hundred percent agree. I think this is a team that will, will, will get punched in the mouth and they won't, they won't wither or they won't quiver and they won't wrinkle. Um, I think it's gonna be an ugly game. Uh, I think it's going to be 60 minutes of, I don't think it's anything we're going to be talking about, you know, five weeks from now when it was like, man, remember that game? I think it was be like, we 
we got through this. We got through this. We won. And uh, and we're on to who the fuck do we play next? <laughs> it's the Giants. The Giants. Yeah, we're on to the Giants. Um, but I 100 percent agree, man. It, it sucks this year with the with the NFC East being the way it is. Yeah. Um, like nobody, nobody believes, I want to say, in the commies. Nobody believes in the Giants. Nobody believes in the in the Minnesota Vikings, who are second in the uh, NFC right now. But they s- still will not go away i mean i think belichick kind of stuck it to the eagles for beating them in super bowl 52 on thursday night not beating that uh kirk cousins led vikings team yeah there are a couple lines that really jump out this week i kind of agree i kind of agree with you man i was like the the eagles need they they need another game of, of breathing room with with minnesota like they can't be going in each week like you know, trying to like just stay, stay like they they could use one more game. I know they have the tie break. I get that. But it would be nice to just gain a little bit more breathing room. It's but it's you know, also amazing. They haven't kind of slipped up. I mean, you call the Monday night football game a slip up. But like I would say they more handed that game to the commanders more than the commanders took that game. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I think that that really each of the last two weeks they would have had an, they had an opportunity to slip up. I think what people want to see and and. I, and I understand this because uh, I'm right there with them. You want to see the Eagles come out and really play that game that makes you go, oh, yeah, you know, they are the most complete team. They are the team to beat. Like, we haven't seen that really for a month now where you, you watch the Eagles and say, like, damn, this team's really, really good. You, you know, you're watching them right now and say, like, this offense is really good or this defense is a little bit better than I thought it was. Like, But it's never the full package at the same time. Like all three units haven't gone out and excelled together now for quite some time. And I, I think that that's why people are starting to get a little on edge about it. You see every flavor of the week become, you know, on first take, is, is this really the best team in the NFC? Insert, you know, Washington, Minnesota, Dallas, San Francisco. And here are the Eagles just kind of like finding ways to win with their 10-1 record. And they're not getting that respect because they haven't had that flash game in a while now. I saw Ron Rivera on a coach of the year uh, candidate, like a graphic on Twitter. Like, who would you take for coach of the year? And there's like 12 different guys like Ron Rivera. Like, I understand, you know, obviously they've been playing well, but Ron fucking Rivera, they're like six and five or seven and five. Like, like, like that like commander's team isn't really that great. Like, but, you know, I to kind of go back to what I, I started to say a couple minutes ago. You start to look at some of the lines this week and then two that just jump off the, the page at me. One. Jets plus three at Minnesota on Sunday. Mike White, baby. That's that's a that's a Jets line, my friend. You know, yeah. Minnesota's a tough place to play. Everyone in the public likes Minnesota. It's a one o'clock game, so you don't have to worry about like primetime Kirk Cousins coming out and stinking up the joint or anything like that. I don't know, man. That's that feels like a, a Jets line. And then the other New York team with with the Giants, two and a half point underdog right now to Washington. I mean, all Washington does is win. Like Washington is what the Giants were the first two two months of the season. Mm-hmm. We're like this team. Like I'm going to be there waiting for their fall, and they just yeah. keep winning and winning and winning. So, uh, two really interesting games that obviously have a lot of uh, impact on the Eagles moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I could I could not believe that the Giants were were ten point dogs last on Thanksgiving. I mean, yeah. with all Thanksgiving and everything, everyone's eating, everyone's you know, no one's getting the proper rest and everything. They're all going out and everything. Yeah, and they come out and win the first half, right? Like, I mean, they 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 controlled. They they played very well in the first half of that game, and then Dallas just kind of ran away from them. But the, the they also backdoor covered, but still. Yeah, and one thing you have to keep in mind with the Giants as well is is just the injury situation, especially in that Dallas game. They were down so much on the defensive side of the ball, and and the injuries that they've had to a pretty shitty wide receiving group 
you know, to, to begin with. So uh, it, that's, that's going to be a really telling game. I think that we might've seen the, the end of the giants. So um, I, I, as an Eagles fan, I guess would not be overly concerned about either of those, those games with the giants. This one on Sunday though, gives you a little anxiety for sure. Yeah. A hundred percent. All right. We got about four minutes left. We got to talk about the movie of the winter cocaine bear. If you haven't seen the trailer now, you were the one who, who started the conversation in the Slack chat. I'd already seen the trailer. Um, this might be the first movie I go to since I saw, uh, emo Batman and Levy, Lenny Kravitz's daughter try to take down a fat Colin Farrell, uh, for that Batman movie, which was absolutely three hours. I'll never get back in my life. That was a, that was a sit on the, uh, sit in the living room and watch that one on HBO max. Uh, the, the last movie I saw in theaters was The Great Gatsby with, wow. with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. So yeah. it's been a while. Now, I don't know that this movie is going to get me to the theater. I think this is a theater movie. Cocaine Bear is so it's it's a it's a it's based on a it's it's inspired by true events, which yeah. makes you, you know, it, it's it's some true and a lot of fake. Um, But the real story is the film was inspired by a real story of a 175 pound American black bear that died after ingesting a duffel bag full of cocaine in December 1985. The cocaine was dropped out of an airplane piloted by Andrew C. Thornton, the second, a former narcotics officer and convicted drug smuggler because his plane was carrying too heavy a load. Thornton then jumped off the plane with a faulty parachute and died. The bear was found three months later, three months later, in northern Georgia alongside 40 open plastic containers of cocaine, about $15 million worth. Bob, this is the actual bear. That's the actual bear. That's the actual bear. It sits in a Kentucky mall on display, basically telling kids not to do drugs or you're going to end up like the cocaine bear. And they also like dress them up in like funny hats and Christmas stuff and, and all this stuff. Well, I don't I don't know about this, but I, I will tell you, like I kind of by nature hate everything. And yes, I've I also become like the cranky old man where I like I'm like they don't make movies like they used to, yeah. right? Like I mean, like when was the last time you really saw like a good comedy be released? Like Hangover. I, yeah, like and I grew up in like the hangover wedding crashers era, you know, right? And I just have been like real underwhelmed with movies in general, but this one. This this may be the must see movie of the year, and and, and, and honestly, you know what I liked about it because like my friend sent me a text message with the trailer. He's like, "Yeah, this looks pretty wild," yeah. and I wanted to hate it. Like I yeah. wanted to hate this so bad. Mm-hmm. And then I start watching it, and I'm like, "This is a completely preposterous storyline." I love that they say that it's it's inspired by true events. That's like that's like having a movie that's completely fictional and fantasy, but there was like a blue sky out and you're like, well, there's blue sky in real life. Like that's, that's basically the the loose connection here, but like it's a movie that doesn't take itself too seriously. And it looks kind of like hilarious yet, like completely ridiculous. I'm in, like I will see this movie and I bet you, I like it too. It's got a good cast too. It's got Carrie Russell from the Americans. It's got uh, ice cube, ice cube son, um, there was a couple other people who the guy actually, from the uh, the IKEA store TikToks, right? Yes, like, they got oh, look at you point out the IKEA store TikToks. You feeling okay? Yeah, man. I know, I know things. I'm cool. <laughs> it's got uh, it's got someone. Oh, Ray Liotta, Ray Liotta, one Ray of his Liotta. best performances. Shout yeah. out to my dead dad. Um, people people think I look like Ray Liotta, or Ray Liotta could be my father, which I was shocked about. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, you're 100% right because like you want to hate it and you're like, this is going to be terrible. But even the bear, the special effects of the bear looks like really good. Um, well, I think, you know, like any any really good movie or any good novel, like when you have a, when you have a villain, but yet you, you find yourself, you know, rooting. somehow rooting for or relating yeah. to it. Like you, you watch that bear rip everybody up <laughs> and you're like, yo, I like that bear, though. Yeah. Like, you know, it's hard yes. not to like that bear. It's a coke fueled bear. I mean, that's a, that's what, what else would you want the bear to do with 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 forty uh, kilos of cocaine running through it? That's a that's a credit to the writers uh, and to the and the producers, really, to just to to take a bear that that you should hate and you know just love them instead. I mean, everyone saw a bear do cocaine, you know, in person. El Wingador at the uh, <laughs> <laughs> at Wing Bowl for for ten years. I mean, that guy put on a performance and he was coked out of his mind. Shout out El Wingador. Hope you're still alive. Um, yeah. What other animals would you not want to be near? doing cocaine an elephant doing cocaine would suck uh a cheetah they're already fast enough i, I think pretty much any animal uh on cocaine is, is probably a losing proposition like you just mean in terms of like your own personal safety yeah yeah i, I don't know like so i live uh, off of water so i've had to deal with some snakes lately snake like, on cocaine would be wild yeah like a snake is is actually pretty like tough to corral as it is like believe it or not like, i think people think like oh it's a snake it just like plops there yeah. like I, I had a snake in my my basement about like two months ago. It was four foot long, or was it four feet long? Four feet long, and I mean the thing like I spotted it and it was like and like shot up the walls. Like what the hell? Like I wasn't ready for that. So you put that snake on cocaine and like yeah, that would be a real problem. I feel like a deer on cocaine would be pretty cool. Like I wouldn't feel I wouldn't feel threatened by a deer. I mean maybe if you're in a car or stuff. But like if you think it would just like, ask you to like go for a ride. Yeah, like hey, you know, deer on cocaine. Uh-huh. Uh, prance through the snow yeah a wombat on cocaine uh, an otter on cocaine would probably be even cuter um so yeah i, I mean but any apex predator really yeah. on, on cocaine would probably not be the best and this is why cocaine bear is going to win all these awards and whatnot i mean it's it's actually going to like it's actually worth your time because well it's, like, like, it's a public service announcement really i think i think people like not only will you be entertained but you'll learn something too and in, in this case like you know, don't go near a bear if it's on cocaine. And I think that that's an important lesson that, that people forget. Yeah. We also should know that a bear shits in the woods if he's on this much cocaine. Yeah. Um, anything else you got for today? No, I think that's a, the, the perfect place to, to put the, put a bell on this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you coming on. And, and so I didn't have to do an hour by myself. Um, this was pretty oh, funny yeah. from Cog and Toboggan. Cocaine bear. Perfect title for a Pat Burrow biopic. <laughs> And this is where Bob slides off the screen. Oh, man. All right. Well, hey, thanks to everybody who was here. Thanks to Bob for coming on. Thanks to Craig on the ones and twos. We will talk to you on Tuesday when the U.S. beats the Netherlands and the Eagles are 11-1 and they clinch a playoff spot. Talk to you again.